Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Foley is Pod. And, of course, we couldn't do it without the Hall of Famer himself, the hardcore legend, Mick Foley. Mick, how are you, man? I am doing great and really looking forward uh, to this episode, which is about one of my favorite time periods, uh, my commissioner position. I love it. Not the missionary position. The That's a different yeah, episode. Yeah, it's a different thing. Yeah, it's a different, <laughs> cheap, uh, thinly veiled sexual innuendo. This is commissionary. Speaking of uh, sexual innuendo, the sexual tension that you're going to see at the end of today's episode, you can cut with a knife. You did a a very special segment recently. You found yourself visiting the beautiful city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and you decided to do what you're calling mankind on the street. Not mankind on the street, but mankind in parentheses. So technically... Can't get in trouble. Can't get in trouble. Uh, and he is uh, just a man on the street. I had a few hours to spare before a flight, and I just turned the camera on, started questioning random people about whether or not I deserved a statue to go alongside the statues at the Pittsburgh airport of George Washington, Franco Harris, and Nellie Bly. I have um, I had an opportunity to see this video. <laughs> I highly recommend it. We're going to air it at the end of today's episode, so stay tuned. You don't want to miss this. Uh, let's jump right into it, though. Our topic, we're fresh off of WrestleMania 2000, and man, it's uh, enough is enough, and it's time for a change. You wrote in your book, I altered my look just a little following April's WrestleMania. Whoa. 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 Water coming back on you. The Water wrong, comes over. Going down Foley the wrong down. tube. <sighs> wow. Okay. Let's... I was hoping you were going to make that noise that you can't make anymore. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. Don't worry, if you start to choke, my friend showed me how to use these two middle fingers. Ooh, nice. Slap that bad boy on, bang, bang, here we go. Uh, so this is a tricky situa- situation, and I don't want to seem ungrateful to my fans, but damn, all the attention can be a little overwhelming at times. So in June of 2000, I decided to become unrecognizable. I celebrated my 35th birthday at Hershey Park, where followed by an unadvertised or an advertised appearance that I traded out for a free room and rides, I retreated to my hotel with a hair clipper. When I exited my room, I was bald, completely incognito, (laughs) unrecognizable. I walked into the lobby of the hotel at uh, the Hotel Hershey as a very new man, and only 11 seconds later, I heard, Are you enjoying your stay, Mr. Foley? That's right. Yeah, it didn't fool many people, especially when I was at the park. And, hey, Mick Foley. I was like, no, I'm not Mick Foley. He's got long hair. It's like, I can see your missing ear. So by shorning, and now partially my wife's fault, because in 99, I had gone on vacation. I had shaved the beard off, which is why when I came back after knee surgery, oh, and also uh, in 98, I shaved under the mankind mask so that Mr. McMahon could give me the the makeover, right? I had my toes done, and uh, I had the tuxedo, all that in the Survivor Series match. Uh, Survivor Series pay-per-view was done while being clean-shaven. But And my wife got to see what I looked like for the first time. We'd been together since 90, thought I had a weak chin, and did not want me to shave again. Um, I guess she had seen also in, uh, in ECW when I did the ECW promo where I had shaved to earn the ire of the fans who were hard to turn any other way. So, yeah, she was not a fan of the way I looked underneath it. Weak chin, yeah. I Did she a, say the phrase weak chin? She said chin? weak chin, weak chin. It's wow. a rounded chin. It's not a square Mr. McMahon chin with a little dimple in the middle. It's a weak It's a weak chin. looks like a weak chin. 
Alrighty. Uh, a week later, I was flown to the World Wrestling Federation headquarters where I was offered the role of commissioner. And so, when I came through the curtain, June 26, 2000, in Worcester, to the biggest ovation of my career, it was as the new bald Mick Foley. A Mick Foley whose drastic haircut made him somehow even more recognizable than ever. <laughs> so who offered you the role? Is this a Vince call? It was a Vince call. You know, it's funny because he... Uh, in the book, I said he offered me the job when I showed up. I thought he offered me a job of, hey, pal, how'd you like to be the commissioner? But he might have said, hey, pal, I've got something for you. And I had Dewey with me on that whole loop, uh, which involved uh, doing a signing at a minor league game in Florida. Dewey was a bat boy, which was a good time. Uh, going to the uh, um, Ohio Valley Wrestling show at the Louisville Garden. Uh, and then we flew up to, uh, Stanford and, uh, he was in on the meeting with me. I think he even handed Vince some ideas, some booking ideas. I kid you not. He had booking ideas at that young tender age. I guess he would have been, uh, nine at the time. And, uh, uh, one way or another, I came out of that meeting accepting the job of commissioner. And. What do you think got you that job? Your ability to sort of ad lib and freestyle, as I like to say. I don't know what went into the thought process. I think they they wanted uh, uh, an authority figure who would have been a fictional authority figure because I right. didn't actually you know have a stake in the company. The only time that the authority figure had been used previously in WWE was. Um, when Mr. McMahon was the authority figure, because we rarely saw Gorilla Monsoon when he was the commissioner. We rarely saw, uh, before him was uh, Jack Tunney, who we rarely saw. They would just mention he was the commissioner. I, I don't know if you saw him more than once or twice a year. So I think he went Tunney, Gorilla, Roddy, Shawn Michaels, me. And as great as some of those talents were, you know, uh, Roddy and Shawn Michaels, they were rarely used on air. And I think I was the first guy that carried a lot of the weight. And at that point, my guess is that they realized that the cycle of darkness they had been in was ending, that they were very heel-heavy. The show had taken on a kind of a dark air with the corporate ministry. And my feeling is they wanted a little levity, but levity that could be occasionally uh, spiced up with uh, a serious promo when called for. I uh, I loved you in this role, and one of my favorite things was we were able to differentiate between your wrestling character, who yeah. had long hair, and now this commissioner right. with the short hair, but the way you made your own commissioner shirt <laughs> and spelled out the word commissioner, and we're going to have the graphic representation <laughs> of that on video now. If you're not watching on YouTube, you got to check it out. Uh, talk to me about <laughs> well, this. just a great idea. I, is it yours? I do not believe that was my idea. It's a home I think run. it was a home run. So much so that they even revisited it uh, years later with a vintage T-shirt. But it was like the idea of a kid with a mother Father's Day or Mother's Day project realizing commissioner doesn't fit across, and instead of starting over. <laughs> They just have it run down the side. Commissioner is a long word, and I wore that the first few days and the rest. And that's really when the flannel shirt started taking on more significance. I wore a lot of different things during my time as commissioner, but it was the red and black flannel that people really uh, took to and decided uh, was the 
uh, prevailing image of my time in the commissionary position. I love it. A lot of um, a lot of folks in wrestling talk about wanting more segments. I've even heard wrestlers in the business who would say, okay, even if these days SmackDown is the A show because it's on Fox and in theory because it has a bigger platform, it has more eyeballs, more attention, it gets cross-promoted in football games and all that. But I've heard some wrestlers say, but I'd rather be on Raw because it's a three-hour show and I'll get more segments, I'll get more TV time. In a weird way, even though you're no longer actively wrestling, you're going to get more TV time than ever as commissioner, huh? I think it was only two hours at that time. Well, it was, but yeah. my point is you're involved in every storyline. Right. I was involved in a lot of storylines. So there's lots of segments, whereas if you were still wrestling, yeah. maybe you're in a segment or two. As commissioner, you might be in five. I know. I was. They, uh, and I spoke to Eric Bischoff back when I was GM, and uh, he said, you know, they're putting a lot of, a, you know, a lot on your shoulders, whereas... Teddy Long was able to do the job for six years because not as much as placed on as long as he called someone player and had a tag team contest. And somebody went one-on-one with the Undertaker. <laughs> Undertaker. <laughs> You're all set. He was going to be fine. Uh, but I liked it. I liked the idea that I got to define what the role was. Now, like a lot of good things, it became overdone over time with a lot a lot of weight placed on the fictional uh, uh, authority figure, right? And it and it ran its course, and uh, I don't, and I, I'm not even sure where they are now. You know, when Paul Heyman took over Raw, there was going to be no authority figures. But at the time I was doing it, it was really new ground, and I was able to kind of define what the role was going to be. And I think WCW followed swiftly within like a month, I believe. You know, they had Terry Funk as their commissioner, like. I think that was my most lasting, uh, uh, my most most lasting impact, longest lasting was that role making it a big deal. You wrote, "I love the commissioner role. Not only was it easy and fun, but in many ways, it may have been my most important role to date. The company showed great faith in me by allowing me to be a central part of storylines, counting on me to help build other wrestlers' characters." and letting me do it while raising the levels of innocent buffoonery in professional wrestling to new heights. And I do wonder, you know, this change in creative happens for the company in, in October of 99. If you come in to do the commissioner role when Russo and Ferrara are still there, does that change it? It has to, right? Probably, yeah. yeah. And if I And if I did it as Mankind or Cactus Jack, it would have been completely different. I thought I'm the commissioner... I'm here to you know help with the storylines. I feel like if I get my stuff in, I'm going to get you know I'm going to get over. I had faith that fans would uh, accept this different face of Foley, and I resolved I'm not going to even pretend like I think I'm the toughest guy in the building. And I think that was really helpful in getting the storylines across. Like I would do the big gulp of fear, you yes. know, when Undertaker was in my presence. I, uh, and I, but I did stand up to people when I felt like I had to, to make the important, uh, the important decisions. This is where I discovered my theory of the happy place, that this was really who I was. Uh, but I, that's me in my happy place. But you don't want to take me out of my happy place because then I will do whatever is necessary by any means necessary to get back to that happy place. And there might be a whooping 
involved. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You wrote in your book, I made a conscious effort when I came back as the commission to put a happy face on the WWF. I will always be proud of my hardcore reputation, but the passage of time has allowed me to be equally proud of my kinder, gentler, goofier side. Mm-hmm. The side that inspired Triple H to declare me a human Muppet. <laughs> I actually visualized a conversation taking place among wrestling fans that spurred me on to be the most ludicrous, nerdy, nincompoopish performer in the history of sports entertainment. And he even says, I like to think that conversations had already begun to sprout. The world is full of nerds, and I would like to be their role model. Uh, until Kurt Angle took the level of nincompoopery, you know, to heights I'd never even dreamt of, yeah, I thought that was pretty, pretty special. Do you have any inspiration from movie characters or, or television characters or anyone you try to emulate? Or is this just really Mick Foley being silly-ass Mick Foley? I don't think I did. I don't. I mean, I wouldn't really think about that. But I think it was just me giving it a whirl and seeing what stuck. You know, when I got there the first day, I ended up doing the uh, uh, multi, multi-segment role with Edge and Christian where they wanted uh, sodas, yes, uh, right, and uh, they wanted their own dressing room. I pointed out that I never had my own dressing room when I was a three-time champion. They countered with, I wrestled in the same stuff I, uh, I arrived in. And then when I came to get them, this, uh, I, I think I concluded one of the interviews by going, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. Now, if I tried that in today's day and age, or at least, you know, in the pre-Triple H era, can you imagine that? Like, I would have been yelled at and reprimanded, but it helped to add to that character. And then when I came back and I said, hey, I got you the sodas. Hey, Foley, you rule. And then I gave them a match with The Undertaker. I left by doing the conga, going, Mick just got you sodas. Mick just... And none of that was scripted. Right. So it was all a part of me having the levity to do that, which makes the pronouncement of now, if I'd been at odds with Edge and Christian throughout the show, and then the announcement of uh, them, t- one of them taking on the Undertaker, would not have meant as much. But I, I really did have free reign. And could I give you another example of something Please that do. would never made the air? This is where all I know is that Patterson and Briscoe are entering the room, and we are going to talk about whatever subject was at hand. But I see that Brian Noyer, uh, who was the sound man, who went to great lengths to to make these memorable commissioner places for me. He would scout out the building and find the coolest place to do it. In this case, they had a cactus plant there. And when we're doing the three and then the two and one are silent. So I know we're on the air. I've got about three seconds before Briscoe and Patterson walk in. And I poke the cactus plant twice. And I go, oh, two pricks. And when they walked in, I said, hey, I was just thinking of you guys. I can't even imagine how quickly that would have hit the editing room floor. Oh, what but at, a great line. At the time, I was allowed to do that stuff. It was so much fun. How um, You're kind of a road warrior and getting to know you this year. You've, you've even said last week on the show you've done more traveling this year than you have in decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you kind of like being on the road. Were you liking it as much here in 2000? I did. I really liked it. Uh, the only downside was that I was on the road a lot, and I didn't have the means to make big payoffs. So there were no uh, pay-per-view uh, bonuses. Um, there wasn't much in the way of merchandise at that time. So I felt like maybe my contributions were not fully appreciated with the payoff I was getting. But I was still doing okay. 
and I felt like I was doing a lot. And part of what made helped me log all those miles is that I was free on the weekends at a time when WWE was red hot, and I was the only kind of top guy who was available for appearances on the weekends. So I was I was almost inevitably coming from someplace on the road with no rhyme or reason as to how those appearances came. Because Dennis Brent would call me and be like, you okay for Seattle? Yes, I am. Are you okay for Kansas? Yes. Boom, 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 boom. Usually just one one appearance and then gone. So I might be in two different parts of the country on two different days and then flying into WWE for two shows, uh, Raw and then SmackDown. So we talked last week that sometimes you, you've learned uh... – the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah, you sort of indicated you weren't thrilled with your pay here. You squeaking yeah. a little bit. Well, yeah, here's the the only downside is, and it felt like a big downside. Now, in retrospect, I think I've even said, man, one of my biggest you know regrets is that I didn't understand how important that role is and how much I loved it, and that I should have done everything in my power to hold on to it. But with my wife being pregnant with my third child, understanding I'd missed so much of the uh, of Dewey and Noel's uh, pivotal moments, I tried to be home as much as I could, but I was away a lot. I wanted to be home. And so I, I left the commissionary position in December of 2000. And in the interim period before I was supposed to come back, Vince bought the XFL. And all of a sudden, I wasn't in touch. And I did not know their plans. And when they gave me their plans, I didn't like it. So I didn't do it. And then I became the boy who cried wolf by not doing the match with Vince Mm. for control of the ownership of the company. With me thinking at the time that it would undermine the importance of the uh, loser must retire, which in the bigger scheme is ridiculous because I later came out of retirement so many times that I did turn it into a farce. But at the time... Coming back after a year, even for control of the company, would have been oh, would have been a you know a terrible blow to the integrity of WWE and your own career and my own career. So eventually, you come back in uh, in June. Uh, you're making these these tours. You're not bumping anymore. But everybody always says the worst part of the WWE schedule is the travel. Is the travel easier because you don't have all the the bangs and bruises? It was because I'm traveling. um, I'm getting a lot of the benefits without the drawbacks. I'm essentially showing up at a respectable hour, but not nearly as early as I used to. I am sometimes allowed to leave early when my segments are over. I'm showing up in the clothes I'll be performing in. I really was fortunate to enjoy a host of great comedic foils, you know, from from uh, Patterson Briscoe to Kurt Angle. Even some of the stuff we did uh, with Triple H in ring was pretty was pretty funny stuff. And then I'm able to cut serious promos when the occasion called for it. So I did. I really enjoyed myself, and it did take. And at that time, I'm 30, uh, 35, I guess. Uh, the road wasn't as difficult to navigate as it is now. It didn't kick my butt at all. At the time, I was kicking the road's ass. I love it. Not vice versa. So you debut the day after King of the Ring 2000 in Worcester, 
Yeah. Shawn Michaels comes out, knocks over the King of the Ring coronation set for Kurt Angle on his way to the ring. Says he's got a major announcement. Triple H comes out, demands that he make him the number one contender because he never lost the title. And Sean said he'd love to do that, but he can't because he resigned. He's no longer commissioner. He introduces Linda McMahon. She appoints you. You come out with a big pop and a new haircut. And uh, you say, with Vince out of the arena, you've got the power now. And you imitate Triple H and say, now that I'm in control, <laughs> make sure there's no more 20-minute boring Triple H promos. Rock got all the credit for doing that, yes. and especially in Brian Gortz's book, which is a great book. But I did it well before because it was a Gortz idea when I did it. We won't have to listen to anymore. And I shouldn't have been doing that. It's not a personal favorite of Triple H's, I'm sure. And I remember we were nose to nose, and there are not two more different noses in the business, you Correct. know, than the two of ours. And it got over, but at what cost, you know, at right. what cost? Um, but it was it was a lot of fun for me to do that. Did Hunter know the, the line was coming? Ooh, I or don't are you know. freestyling? I don't know. I do not have an answer to that question. It may have been something that I was told not to share because it may have been batted, batted away. I'm, I'm not sure. Triple H probably would have been fine with it, you know, uh, but, but I don't know for sure. Talk to me about Shawn Michaels. You're replacing him as the commissioner. It feels as if he never really dug being the commissioner. I don't think he had as nearly as much fun as you did. Whether he dug it or not, I don't know. But I know that he was rarely on TV to the right. point where, you know, even our diehard uh, Foley's Pod fans be scratching their heads and be hard-pressed to think of a time when Shawn made a, an announcement or was on the road. So I think it was a turning of the page. Uh, of course, uh, your first day Not in. Not just turning it a page, but a whole new book. I like it. Yeah. Uh, you even wrote about in your book, you know, this uh, this first day on the job here. You do the whole bit with the sodas and Edge yeah. and Christian. Just great stuff. I mean, when you think back to this commissioner role in this era, were you sort of almost, for lack of a better word, Brian Gerwitz's muse of sorts? Maybe because so. Look, uh, Brian really enjoyed writing for me. Yes. Later, he would go on to have even more success, a lot more success writing for Rock. Rock loved working with Brian to the point where Brian runs Seven Bucks Production Company. Yeah. You know, he's one of uh, Rock's main men. But Brian, he was told, you know, that the hey, anyone, you know, anyone can do comedy. And Brian's thing was, anyone could do comedy. Not anyone could do good comedy. That's right. Right. And we've heard the funny isn't money. For decades, and I'll counter with Rock, Austin, Hunter, Sean, throw myself in the mix. Vince. Vince. Uh, I mean, we used humor very, very liberally uh, in the non-political uh, aspect of the word, and, and it really worked. You know, and so did Flair back in the yeah, day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dressing Rick was, up mannequins. Yeah, Rick was extremely was. funny. I mean, the stuff where, you know, when I say the time when... He was attacked and his clothes were torn off and yes. he took the backdrops. Like, which time was... Because yeah. it's been a great thing. Flair, of course. Yeah, it was super funny. Um, so I would argue that it's anyone can, anyone can do humor. It's much more difficult to do it in a way that's conducive to drawing money. Nothing funny about Henson shaving. Oh, uh, yeah. You and I love Henson shaving. We've uh, we've fallen in love with the well, business model. Well, I don't know yet. I'm going to take the Henson shaving challenge. So you can see this is a rugged stubble about a week long. 
I am going to go in the interest of full disclosure. We're going to tape two episodes tomorrow. I'm going to show in. I'm going to show up clean, smooth as a baby's bottom. And I'm going to give Henson shaving products a try and see how I like them. Once upon a time, you were synonymous with um, bleazades. <laughs> and uh, these days, you know, the days of you using them on your forehead are behind you. Yeah, they are. But uh, when you need a really good bleazade. Yeah. These I don't days, always get color. There you go. But when I do, I use Henson's. Well, though, there's no color involved. We'll, we'll figure it out. Okay. See, here's the thing. We're trying to avoid Nick's. <laughs> yeah, we are. Yeah. irritation. And we're trying to avoid the gimmicky subscription scams. And I'm a big <laughs> fan of this. Uh, if you haven't already, let me explain. Henson shaving is all about precision. Henson shaving is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer. Think about this, guys. They make parts for the International Space Station yeah. and the Mars rover, and now they're bringing that same precision engineering to your freaking face. Now, blazer, blazer, razor blades <laughs> are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble. And the more the wobble... Did I mention I used an Action Jackson action figure? On your wiener. On once. my wiener as a diving board. Yes, when I was getting to know my body in 1980. Did you just have Tourette's and want to tell us that now? <laughs> I was well aware that we covered that. But I thought, who among the us doesn't want, to, uh, doesn't want to revisit the sound effect synonymous with... <laughs> did Henson, uh, did Action Jackson go exploring anywhere else? Or just the diving board? Just the diving board. Thank goodness. Uh, the longer the board, the more the wobble. The more the wobble, the more the nicks, the cuts, the scrapes. You see a bad shave, boys and girls, it's not a blade problem. It's an extension problem. Yeah. And by using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes metal razors that extend just 0.0013 inches, which is less than the thickness of a human hair. That means a secure and stable blade with a vibration-free shave. And it gets better. This razor has built-in channels to evacuate hair and cream, which makes clogging virtually impossible. Seriously, Henson Shaving wants the best razor, not the best razor business. Now, what that means is no plastic, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. The Henson Razor works with a standard dual-edge blade to give you that old-school shave, but the benefits of all the new-school tech. And by the way, when you own a Henson Raver, it's only like three to five bucks a year to replace the blades. I've tried it. I think you're going to love it. I have to admit, I wasn't sure what to expect when I heard it was thinner than a human hair. Dude, it's awesome. And you want to get my attention? Tell me how to make something easier and cheaper, and I'm all in. And it's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that will last you a lifetime. Visit HensonShaving.com forward slash Foley to pick the razor for you and use the code Foley. And you'll get two years' worth of blades for free with your razor. Just make sure you add them to your cart. That's 100 free blades when you go to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G.com forward slash Foley and use the promo code Foley. Look, look, look it's just uh, Jungle Boy. Uh, it's in the rearview mirror now. We can talk about rear it. Rearview mirror now. But he did talk to me at a, a Comic-Con told me what was possibly on the table. Uh, did he take flight? He did. Okay. 
Uh, did he give a hand signal or of some type? Did he relish the moment? I have to tell you, I didn't. He relished the moment. He relished he flew the moment. off the top with no. a flying elbow through Luchasaurus on a table in the middle of the ring. It was phenomenal. It felt special. It opened the show. People loved it. Oh, One of the best good. cage matches in a while. Good for him. I um, I was fortunate This was enough. flair. Right? Yeah. You're going to laugh. I have that. Do you really? When they, uh, unfortunately, Jeff Jarrett, who's a real SOB, we had a plan in a parking lot to sell Ric Flair's last match. So Rick knows what to do. Rick was well prepared. He couldn't wait to do it. <laughs> Turns out it wasn't necessary. Jeff Jarrett stabbed my father-in-law in the head with his wife's shoe. For real. Not a gimmick. Not a gizm. Okay. But a, a, his art way. And we're talking just gushing. And then afterwards, Rick unwinds the magic and says, well, I don't know what to do with this. Because he never used it. And I said, well, I mean, we need to frame that or something. <laughs> this is, to you, this is the one that got away. I mean, have you ever had one that didn't get used? He goes, no, I think that's the first one. So. <laughs> you know, just a little segue, which our fans enjoy. One of the uh, most rewarding parts about uh, writing uh, Have a Nice Day was giving out notebooks to different uh, colleagues. So Steve Austin, big proponent of Have a Nice Day. Kid, you got some more of that book I can read? And he'd be up there in first class about a year before I got uh, bumped up. And those big lat muscles. He'd be up there with the businessmen and their attache cases. And he'd be up there just belly laughing, putting it over big time. So here's me and Kane, you know, and back in coach. He loved the part where it comes up to me and Vader, where, where Harley, we're going to get some hard way, some hard way blood. And uh, Harley's an expert at this stuff, right? He's going to pop me once with this big old paw, boom, right over the eyebrow. And instead, Leon beat him to the punch. You know, Leon gave me about six stitches below the eye, four or five above it. And so when I get to Harley, the truth is he looks at me and goes, it's already done. But in my telling, it was, it's already done, grumbled a disappointed Harley. <laughs> like yes. It made him out to be like the guy just itching to get in there on me. And it was like, even Harley was excited, despite the devastating setback he just endured, which was he wasn't given the opportunity to split me wide open. I love it. Um, we, we talked a little bit about how much fun you had with Edge and Christian. We've said on the show before here recently, we don't think there's maybe a better comedic performer, a better natural comedic performer in wrestling than Kurt Angle. He happens to travel with those guys. This feels like this group of guys is like exactly what Brian's been hoping for in oh, wrestling. Man. Kurt Angle, Edge, Christian, Team Eck, Team ECK. And, of course, you rounding out the mix. Who's having more fun here, the guys or Brian? I imagine it was equal. Uh, yeah. One of the things I'm proudest of is that on three different videos, WWE DVDs, me, Edge, and Christian, we all had um, extra bonus material on what we called Credgely, Christian, Edge, and Foley. And we just really looked forward to those uh, moments I think one of my favorite episodes was when uh, Christian was trying to win double gold and he was trying to get his hands on the light heavyweight. It was called a light heavyweight, right, yeah. at that time? And I just said, how much do you weigh? And he gave me a figure, and I just said, you're lying. He, he, <laughs> no way in. All right, all right, all right. He had to sweat off three or four pounds. And I convinced him that the only way to do that is with a chicken suit. He won't wear the chicken suit. 
because it's totally ridiculous. And then I tell him the story about an Olympic champion who trained in a chicken suit. And in one of the greatest cameos of all time, after <laughs> Christian's been training in this chicken suit, Kurt Angle walks by and goes, that's, <laughs> that's my chicken suit. <laughs> <laughs> that's, my, <laughs> that's my chicken soup. 22 years later it still gets you oh man and my other favorite Kurt Angle line I saw Kurt uh, taping a show that may or may not be taking can't talk about it can't talk about it but I told Kurt one of my favorite moments together I'm the commissioner and I'm wearing the macaroni necklace that Noel made me in preschool every dad's had the macaroni necklace given to them. I think I'm the one of the few dads who actually sported theirs on national TV and had enough beads in it so that, uh, you know, Kurt said, oh, I like the beads. And I said, oh, that gives a little something my, da- my daughter made for me. And then everything's going cordially until I say, oh, you will be in a match tonight against dun, 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 The Undertaker. And Kurt, at a loss for words, finally goes, I lied about the beads. And storms off, and I just thought, oh, that's a, that's magical. It it's is. It's just magical. I lied about the beats. Great stuff. Uh, you wrote in your book, your first night back with the company, The Rock approaches you, and you guys reminisced about the rock and sock connection, and he gave you what almost sounded like an apology. Quote, Mick, when we teamed up, I was new to being a baby face. I almost felt like I was walking on eggshells, but I just watched some of that stuff we did, and, man, that was some really funny shit. If we were to do some things together now, I'd be up for anything. It's really is, nice. I forgot about that. Is this like a maybe almost a redemption tour because you're no longer – and listen, I know everybody has friends in wrestling, but on some level, you're these guys are your competition. We're competing for spots. Mm-hmm. This is before everybody has you know, just a downside guarantee and that's all you're going to make. That's kind of the way the business is now because the pay scale has been inflated. But back then – Man, you want to headline that pay-per-view. You want to yeah. be on the top of that card. You make more money. So it's not just about, hey, I want to go on last. It's about, I want to make the most money. And in a weird way, these guys who are your brothers, you're kind of competing with mm-hmm. them. But as a commissioner, man, all that stress and pressure is gone. The dynamic has to be different, right? It is, because in no way am I competing with anybody for a spot or a payoff. And guys know that even though I like the haha, that when the situation calls for it, I'm going to put over their characters. Yes. And again, I'm not portraying myself as the toughest guy in the room, so I'm going to sell when things get serious. I'm going to be afraid of the undertaker. I'm going to I'm going to sell for Triple H when I fire up to him every once in a while when the situation calls for it. So I think you're right. I'm able to be friends with everybody. Um, I really truly enjoy myself. The only downside I touched on a little bit is that I'll say um, as a guy who went through my career, like I never felt the pressure more when it came to like being alone and just having everyone around talking about fans so it was like the rock star life without the rock star trappings yes and i think we covered this in another episode saying in 99 there were about 12 of us maybe eight of us given the option of having uh security and i think everyone who was offered it took it except me and uh at a certain point i was like brother i could use it because it's just everywhere it's and i think singers go through this where after they the big wave subsides and they're more comfortable with the level of fame which is fine and now i get a lot of people just hey thank you very much free water burger yeah free water burger here and and going back to what the rock said 
That's really nice. I'd forgotten that we had that talk, but one talk I remember is that when we saw each other, maybe it was Mania 2015, right around that time era, we had a nice talk about how neither one of us understood that what we were doing was going to stand the test of time. Right. And we remembered so fondly by people who were struggling and going through a difficult time. So whether that was um, um, a life-challenging illness or whether it was somebody who did not feel like they fit in, uh, the, the stuff I did with Rock really made people happy. And I think the mankind of that era, the happier mankind, made people who did not feel like they fit in felt like they had a place to fit in. I love this era of your stuff. And eight days after you're back and you have that talk with The Rock, you find yourself in the ring with him again. <laughs> Quote, The Rock had a catchphrase that it consisted of asking a person a question and then cutting them off. It doesn't matter what you think, want, say, where, and so on. Personally, I hated the phrase because there was always some Yahoo at a personal appearance who would use it, and it was really annoying. But on this night, however, The Rock suggested I use his own phrase. Oh, he on did him. suggest. I was asked about that. He uh, suggested, oh, how cool is that, right? That right he... in your book. Rock, congratulations on being a three time World Wrestling Federation champion. In my opinion, this has to put you up where up there with the greatest World Wrestling Federation champions of all time. I was wondering if you could tell me what you think about that. At the moment The Rock got the first syllable out, I was there for the cutoff. <laughs> Hit us with it, man. It doesn't matter what you think about it. And then, if memory serves me correctly, I did two to three laps at a surprising pace for a big guy with bad knees. And The Rock sold it like a million bucks. It's just that smile. It was it was great. Great TV. Shaking his head in disbelief. The crowd is chanting, Foley, Foley. They're so happy for you. I mean, this really is the epitome of, and I know Vince has said it before. Maybe he was criticized. But this, if this ain't putting smiles on people's faces, I don't know what is. Oh, man. It was. It was a beautiful time. And ironically, it was a time when we were getting the most negative feedback for the content of the show and i just thought our critics were cherry picking those moments yeah that were uh a little contentious and overlooking the fact that it was really a fun show at that time this time is also probably when you become famous for becoming the king of the cheap pops <laughs> is that your idea or does somebody well, suggest it well you know i think it was in my head via my friendship with owen because Owen was always like, uh, you know, in his photos, he would really cheese up the 80s baby. <laughs> the big thumbs up. <laughs> it was, was me, you know, thinking back to the stuff that made me laugh about Owen. Uh, and just taking what was already done. I think in wrestling lore, it was like I invented the cheap pop. I wasn't the I wasn't the guy who invented it. You just did it consistently. I acknowledged it and I did it with a wink and a nod. Yes. And Lawler sold it. Everyone went, oh, another cheap pop. And it wasn't just... I remember Big E going up to me after I was at a show where he said something about here in Boston. And he was like, I know that you're like... First of all, I'm not on the show anymore. And it's not mine. I'm right. just a guy who brought attention to it. By all means, get that cheap... You know, that cheap pop, it's there for the taking. All right, Mick, we got to have a timeout right now to talk about one of my favorite holiday traditions, Omaha Steaks. I first received the gift of Omaha steaks for Christmas over a decade ago, 
And then I thought, what a cool gift. Now it's a regular part of my gift giving routine. If you've got somebody in your life, that's hard to buy for man, listen up. The holidays are here and we want to help you achieve gifting greatness. When you give the gift of perfectly aged, tender and delicious Omaha steaks. Omaha Steaks have put together a delicious selection of various gift packages to make shopping for the ones you love nice and easy. Go to omahasteaks.com and take advantage of 50% off site-wide, plus use the code FOLEY at checkout to get an additional $40 off your order. Omaha Steaks has everything you need to give a gift that's simply perfect. Send an assortment of mouth-watering favorites like the Butcher's Cut Filet Mignon, the air-chilled boneless chicken, the ultra-juicy burgers, and an easy-to-prepare comfort meal that is ready in a flash. Don't wait. Order today and beat the shipping rush. Go to omahasteaks.com. Use the promo code Foley at checkout. Omaha Steaks is a gift from the heart, a gift that will be remembered with every unforgettable bite. Order with complete confidence today, knowing that you're ordering the very best. Visit omahasteaks.com. Take advantage of 50% off site-wide. Plus use that promo code Foley at checkout and you'll save an extra, an extra, an extra $40 off your order. Can't beat that. Now, as a heads up, a minimum order may be required, but you're not going to worry about that. Instead, you're going to be worried about, hey, can I order enough for them to invite me over? That's the pro tip, y'all. If you get a bigger package, they're going to say, hey, man, love this gift. Got a few. You want to come up? Yes, I do. I do love Omaha Steaks. Check it out. It's a gift for them. It's a gift for you. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It's OmahaSteaks.com and use promo code Foley. Save an extra $40 off. And hey, as a reminder, I'm sure dads like socks and ties, but what they really want is steak. All dads want steak and yours does too. OmahaSteaks.com. Use that promo code Foley. Save yourself some cash. Let's talk about, uh, your first opportunity to announce the first ever TLC. Think about that. The first ever tables, ladders, and chairs. You're making the stunts for it, uh, or making the announcement for a big stunt match like this. And you're kind of synonymous with a lot of these violence and over the top spectacles and who better to introduce a match like that? Maybe than you, right? And, uh, again, if memory serves me correctly, I think edge and Christian were on their way out of the building. Okay. When I was like, wait, not so fast. And then I laid out not only the match they would be in on the upcoming pay-per-view, but I think that's when I coined the phrase, and it was off the cuff, tables, ladders, and chairs, oh my. Tables, ladders, and chairs, oh my. So the fact that that's still used 22 years after the fact makes me feel pretty good. So... I like this because you write in your book, some of the best times of my career have come as World Wrestling Federation champion. Cheap pops, I treasure them. And I would rather put my goofy vignettes with Edge and Christian into a time capsule than my ECW interviews that were so full of anger. I show up when I want, but never too late. I wear what I want. I pretty much say what I want. And I usually get to leave when I want. And in return, I'm given a bigger audience reaction than my active career would ever know. Yeah, I think that's that's crazy. Uh, Can I give you an example of one of the benefits of being able to say whatever I wanted is that there wouldn't be scripts for other people with me to memorize. They would say, just uh, follow mix lead, playoff mix. So I go in and I alert the cameraman and the sound man that I'm about to do a completely ridiculous promo with Test and Albert and Trish, but to sell it like it's completely legitimate. So Test goes in only knowing that he's going to be reprimanded and sent away 
And he goes, come on, Foley, give me that match. And I said, let me tell you something. I'm the commissioner, right? He goes, yes. Again, he has no idea what I'm going to say. That means I make the rules. So yes. I guess you would say I'm the ruler. Let me tell you something about every ruler. They've all got 12 inches. So maybe you need to bend over. Maybe you need to get out of this office before I bend you over this table and rule your ass. He goes, yes, sir. Thank you. And then as he walks away, I hear them going, okay, good. That was good, Mick. And I hear Tess say to Albert, is he allowed to say that? <laughs> I waited about 10 minutes. And then we called him back in the room and I said, it's a rib. And he lets out this big sigh of relief. He goes, I didn't think you'd be allowed to talk about that. <laughs> Maybe about bend. I thought Before you were going to land on your shoe, but you just left uh, that out. Yeah, yeah. It. Bend over this table. Let me rule your ass. ass. Yeah, yeah, with the twelve inches. Great stuff. Uh, <laughs> you wrote in your uh, in your book. I'm proud of my short lived chemistry with Gerald Briscoe. That saw us somehow manage to steal verbiage from Bugs Bunny Elmer Fudd arguments and repeat it verbatim on Raw. I'm thrilled to have played some small part of Kurt Angle's rapid ascent to superstardom. And have looked on with great interest as other performers slowly make gains in becoming rocks, stone colds, and hunters of the future. Yeah. Perhaps most of all, I enjoyed my talks with Stephanie McMahon. Yeah. And I always look forward to her infectious smile, which makes every day seem a little nicer. Whenever I get mad at her dad, which is quite often, yeah. I think of her and marvel at how, despite his ridiculous workload, Mr. McMahon found the time to be a good father along the way. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that Stephanie was a highlight. We don't hear a lot about Stephanie behind the scenes. What was your relationship like with her here, and why was she a bright spot? Well, first of all, that was put in as a little teaser for a potential angle down the road, which okay. was there if we needed it. But I, I wouldn't say something that wasn't true. Stephanie, at that point, was in the interim period where she was going from marketing. Uh, to, she, this was, she was in between marketing. She may have even been simultaneously marketing in the marketing department and she would show up as an on-air talent, but she wasn't in charge of creative or had anything to do with creative. So when she was at TV, she was just one of the guys. And she was just really, and, and I, you know, looking now, like her and Triple H did have a relationship, but nobody knew that at the time. It wasn't until I remember Big Show saying uh, during the rehearsal for Rock Saturday Night Live, like, do you think something's going on there? And I was like, no, no. And it turns out he was... He was onto something, but I always liked Stephanie. I'm still a Stephanie McMahon guy, uh, big believer in her. And uh, I know when I uh, wrote the Chris, Stephanie did the she did the forward of my Christmas memoir, mm -hmm. and to show you why she is who she is, uh, the publisher was like, "Mick, we kind of need that forward." She actually just eviscerated me verbally at my urging. Like uh, when I finally started to get on track with the uh, GM role, it's where I realized, okay, I'm in a different atmosphere. I have to play by the rules. I don't get to write the rules anymore. But instead of me trying to memorize someone else's verbiage, which was really difficult for me with the head injuries, I would write out promos. And even if they only took a few lines, it felt like they were mine. Right. So Stephanie's line was, isn't it sad? She put me over and then talked about how mu how far I'd fallen and said, isn't it odd how the man who used to be able to take so much can now take very little at all? Or, and it was, a, it was a verbal chewing down, and I had asked her if I could see her afterwards, and she didn't know what I wanted to talk about. And I said, I was wondering if you would write 
the forward to my book. And she kind of like went, oh, I, I wasn't expecting that. And she was really happy to do it. Now, uh, six weeks goes by or whatever. And I said, Stephanie, like, um, I hate to rush you, but, the, you know, publisher really needs that. And she goes, okay, I'm just about finished with my first draft. And I said, first draft? I said, I wrote mine and I wrote my forward for DDP in 45 minutes while I watched television. And it was a pretty good first draft. But I will just say that's why she is who she is, because she really, uh, uh, you know, she expected a lot from herself. You know, her father expected a lot from her, and she uh, delivered. You never see her mess up a promo. She was there to rescue me when I couldn't remember what I was doing. And one of my fondest memories uh, in wrestling period is that when Dewey first started as a writer, uh, he was assigned the task of rewriting a promo. Because we got time, right? We have yeah, a little yeah, bit of time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where I just thought, you know, going back to this is 2000, fall of, fall of 2016, I think. So I've just taken over this role, in probably summer. I took it over in July of 2016. Uh, general manager for Raw with Stephanie as the commissioner and my boss. And no one has mentioned anything about the fact that Triple H interfered with the mask, uh, match costing. Uh, some, I can't remember what title was at stake. Uh, we had a couple of... The, the first time was when Triple H had interfered. And I thought we have to have some kind of friction here or else I'm just in a corner in my second week in the job. It's me against her. I thought there should be some gray area. And I got maybe 10% of what I wanted out of uh, Vince. And then Stephanie and I on our own went and cut the promo our own way. Uh, and there was a lot of tension. We're, we are overriding Vince's edict. Mm -hmm. We cut the promo. He sees us cutting the promo. He goes, what the hell is going on here? And uh, Stephanie goes, Dad, uh, Mick and I did this just to see what happened. We'd like you to take a look at it. And what? And it was about a three-minute segment. And he looked at it afterwards. It seemed like an eternity. nodded his head and went, we'll do it your way. And as he's walking down the hallway, Road Dog comes up to me and Stephanie goes, you know, you all know you can't get your own way for like six weeks after that. I said, I know, I know. Let him turn the corner. And as soon as he turned the corner, we hugged and we were just so happy that we had stood up for ourselves. And in a similar uh, segment, there was no explanation for why nobody came in or nobody addressed the fact that a uh, main event had been tampered with. can't remember which main event it was. And so I was allowed to pitch an idea, which we did, and Dewey sat down with me and we wrote it together. And then he got to see a real pro, Stephanie, in action with his dad, nailing it on one take, delivering it with authority. It was like she read it, got it. It's got a photographic mind, I right. believe. Or else she just has worked really hard to develop her uh, her uh, memorization skills. And she was an invaluable aid to me when my memorization was really a problem. It's so uh, cool to hear nice stories about Stephanie McMahon because it often feels like, you know, it's just... Um, it becomes an opportunity to just bash McMahon's anytime, yeah. you know, and, and I think it's nice that we get to hear about the other side. Another guy that I love hearing stories about, Gerald Briscoe. <laughs> Man, this Bugs Bunny, Elmer Fudd stuff. <laughs> you know Tell the, me the backstory. Do you know the episode? I don't recall. He goes, Mr. McMahon's like a caged animal, and you know what a caged animal is like? And I said, 
no, I don't. And he said, yes, you do. <laughs> Duck season, rabbit season. Yes. Duck, for those who don't know, Looney Tunes was, oh, man, I don't think they've gotten their due. They've kind of no. been forgotten. Duck season, rabbit season, and then the Daffy turns around and says, uh, rabbit season, what a duck season. Elmer ends up, yeah, in a bad, I can't remember, but he turned the tables on him. Yes. And so, yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. I said, no, I don't. And then I, he said, yes, you do. I said, yes, I do. He said, no, you don't. Ah, gotcha, yes. gotcha. Bugs Bunny, right? But yes. then in the end, we end up hopefully lifting whatever that storyline was. Yes. And getting their attention because of the ha-ha, as Pat Patterson would call it. And honest to goodness, you wrote it in your book. Do you still feel the same way now that you prefer that stuff being a time capsule more than the ECW stuff? Hmm. You're allowed to change your opinion. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you see how proud I am. One biggest change is that I used to think of dude as like the family embarrassment. And now I just love Dude on his cameos. I've uh, grown quite fond of Dude Love. I'm equally, equally. Um, again, you asked me a couple uh, of uh, programs ago about the way I want to be remembered. And I said, as a guy who expanded the idea of what a top guy could look like. Yes. And I also said I wanted to be remembered as a guy who treated people the way he wanted to be treated. And so I'm equally proud of the hardcore stuff and the and the harmless stuff that I did. I mean, I loved them both, but I, I think as a maybe an, uh, a hardcore wrestling fan, I still like the ECW stuff. I mean, the, the fun stuff yeah. is great. Like, I think if I sat down and I tried to introduce my mom. To the goofy stuff. She would love it. Right. Uh, she might not. The ECW stuff wouldn't resonate. Right. But it does to me because I feel like I'm, if there is such a thing as being in a wrestling bubble, I might be in it. We're going to see this video today, The Mankind on the Street. Stay tuned. End of the video. And, but the be- focus on the two reactions from the people who are not wrestling fans. Yes. Where they see the Hell in a Cell, mm-hmm. the first Hell in a Cell bump. Because these are completely legitimate reactions by two completely non-fans. Even though one woman does say, I do know The Undertaker, he's a wrestler. And uh, I'll leave the rest uh, to the the telling of the tale. Um, But I don't think that if we had done a a montage of funny stuff that I would have gotten nearly the reaction from those two people as they did. There's a lot of bang for that buck, you know, for that uh, Hell in a Cell buck. Speaking of bang for the buck, this episode is brought to you by Blue Chew. Going to get you more bang for your buck. like it. Mick, this Blue Chew product gets you harder. I mean, it's so hard, even a cat couldn't scratch it. And that's pretty hard. Axon Jackson would have trouble diving off of it. He would have trouble. There would have been no give. No wobble. It wouldn't have been a boing, boing, boing. No. It doesn't even make a sound. That's how effective Blue Chew is. It's turned me into a... a (laughs) Just saying. That's not me knocking on wood. I think you hear me knocking. I think I'm coming in. I think it's a hot tag for your wiener, boys and girls. It's Blue Chew. It's a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredient as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. Now, you can take Blue Chew's uh, awesome products here, day or night, so plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. Now, the process is simple. You'll sign up at BlueChew.com. You'll consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part. It's all done online. What's that mean to you? 
means no visits to the doctor's right. office, no awkward conversations, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. And if you can benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, chew it and do it. Have better sex, y'all. We've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free. When you use our promo code Foley at checkout, just pay $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com. The promo code is Foley to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank BlueChew for sponsoring the podcast and our wiener jokes here on the show. Yeah, and uh, it just uh, occurred to me that uh, despite constant badgering, you have not offered me the product. Uh, when you do, I'm going to take a page out of did, When you grew up Here's with, the thing, Mick. Okay. I can't technically give you blue chew okay i can't give you a promo code but you've got to consult with a licensed medical you don't have samples that's illegal oh okay now i mean listen if it was 1996 and we were on an airplane (laughs) and i pulled one out and you leaned over and said got any any extras And they said, what was it? I got a blue ones. What were they? Blue ones. (laughs) ones. But here's what I'll do. All right. Okay. Did you grow up in an era pre or post New Zoo Review? I don't even know what you just said. New Zoo Review was a children's program. Okay. And had a theme song. It's the New Zoo Review. Come and ride at you. So we're going to go, it's my blue chew review. So we're going to do a review live. Now. At the new year. Yeah. I will, Are you and we'll have Mrs. Foley on, perhaps via Zoom, to discuss whether or not that is a good thing or a bad thing. I was going to ask if Grillo had to make a road trip for this, because he may have bit off more than he could chew, pardon the pun. Um, you know, Eric used to go on his podcast and describe in great detail his routine with Blue Chew Ooh. and Mrs. B okay. for his uh, <clears throat> Sunday morning. Ooh. And he felt comfortable going into great review. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was uh, a little weird, strange. And uh, Eric's wife Lori still a smoke show, stunning woman. Yeah. I mean, uh, let's. Let, you guys are salesmen. You married a model. He married a model. I mean, Mrs. B was in Playboy. I mean, she's a big time model. Mm. And uh, even he was like, "Yeah, but I, I still got to impress her. I got to put on a show." So, yeah, Mick, this is the hot tag for your wiener you've been looking for. All right, okay. All right. I will I will let you know. I will have a meeting, uh, v, but not an in-person meeting with a medical professional. Yes. Okay. It, it's all online, which is great. All right. So we'll get that set up, and then maybe what we could do is we could do like a one-two punch, right? Me and EB? Uh, maybe not. Okay. I was thinking maybe you do Manscaped first. <laughs> you know, make it look nice for her. <laughs> How do you know it doesn't already look nice? Well, I mean, listen. I don't the strike you as a grooming. You want to show us. Like, uh, what are we even doing? Let's just move along. So uh, the biggest part, uh, or the biggest. <laughs> nobody story. wants to think of me that way. Here's the thing, nobody, nobody, and my status in the bear community would probably go down if they found out I was manscaping. Well, no, yeah. you could. I think they want that to be appropriate. I think they want like a hairy back, which you probably got. I do right? not have a hairy back. One thing is, up until I went with the art of the cover-up, you I was... You hairy-ass you know, arms. I, I do, you don't but it, would, it didn't transfer to the chest. What I'm saying is, I didn't shave anything, right? The only time I ever shaved the arms was when I was Santa, and I didn't think Santa should have hairy arms. Right. Uh, that was the only time I shaved anything other than my pits. And, uh, and that so, was for headlocks, right? 
and it was unsightly, you know, it's kind of a, a little bit unsightly, you know. Pillman was known as the guy who shaved everything but his pits, and that was a personal choice, and I respected that. Uh, my case, I wouldn't necessarily, sh- I would snip them with scissors. Yeah, Just trim it down. Just trim it down, yeah. Um, since we're talking about all of this, and I can't believe that we're doing that right now, I, I, I am curious how... What is the process for like wrestler etiquette for body hair? I, I I've known it was I thought felt like I knew it was armpits. Is there anything else like mouthwash, toothpaste? Like you you want you want to be respectful of your opponent uh, or your partner, depending how you look at it. Yeah, and so you you know what I mean. You do I, I and this is coming from a guy who's been known who had been known to forget his stuff. Uh, we wadded up in a sweaty ball in my. Uh, in my bag, I might not air it out. We didn't have Febreze regularly like we do now. You had to do the little the little thing in the shower with the you know the shower and the the rinse and soak. Uh, okay, so when you get back to your hotel room, you take your first gear. thing you should do is clean your gear. And, and what was the process in a hotel room that doesn't have a washer dryer? Yeah, you would uh, you would uh, use either the sink or the shower. Uh, stomp it, you know, you would stomp on that son of a gun and you would get it as clean as you could and then you would hang it up either by a hanger over the shower, hope it was dry, uh, but you usually was by the time morning came and you'd get and do it all over again. But many a good man has forgotten, you know, you finish your match, you're on the road, boom, you get into that hotel room, it might not be, it might be 3 or 4 a.m. Many a good man has forgotten it. And I would say whether or not that was an issue in the locker room depended on the respect you already had. So uh, I definitely forgot a time or two. There have been some big names. And we're talking about guys who wore the tights and the, you know, uh, the top because the trunks clearly would, clearly would dry much quicker. But you wanted to be respectful. And I already talked, uh, oh, no, I talked about Matt Bourne on Dark Side of the Ring. Uh, Matt took issue with the way I smelled in world class. And so I tried not to repeat that mistake. You, uh, you've also told a story once about body hair, where maybe somebody once gave Al Snow a suplex on a house show. <laughs> We've never told that story on the air here. I, I talked Bob Holly. Bob was going to be my opponent. Now, one thing to remember is my body was crumbling. Uh, knees were giving out. This is before I was given that final reprieve and had uh, the glorious send-off with Triple H and the two big matches to end my full-time career. Royal Rumble and No Way Out, which was the Hell in a Cell match. Uh, and I was really down on myself because I wanted to put on a show, but I had to find creative ways to do it because I was really, really having trouble with the knees and uh, pain, constant pain, which meant that I was anesthetizing at Perkins and Denny's and every other every fast food restaurant you could think of. And so on that day in Montreal, let's just establish it was Montreal. It was November. It was a hockey arena, which meant that when I did talk Bob Holly into adjusting Al's wardrobe before lifting him high, high overhead into the late November Montreal hockey arena air, uh, it was obvious that there had been some shrinkage. And also, Al did not subscribe to what was at the time, late 90s, the rather new trend in male grooming. And so, therefore, Conrad, I saw what appeared to me to be a tiny sparrow's egg 
peeking out of a nasty vulture's nest. So I don't want to speculate as to Mr. Snow's grooming habits now, but at the time, sparrow's egg, vulture's nest, I'm sticking to it. And on that note, let's move along. Uh, <laughs> Can I-, I tell you one of my favorite moments as commissioner? Please do. Is when I told Al Snow, and again, Al doesn't know what I'm going to do. And I said, Al Snow, I'm going to give you a title shot. And as I say title shot, I take the big... I guess he does know. He's willing to play the fool. He's going to say, me against the Rock, Rock being WWE champion, I'm going to give you a title shot. Big swig, Al says, me against the Rock. I'll do it. Go ahead. I'm going to give you a title shot. Me against the Rock? (laughs) Oh, God, no! Hell no! <laughs> <laughs> it was worth it, right? Yeah. <laughs> God, no. Fantastic. Hell, no. Oh, man, I guess you could argue I'm not emphasizing the importance of the secondary titles, but it was worth where I had to go. To get it was it. fantastic. Yeah. And, and all the bullying of Al Snow was worth it. <laughs> oh, very much so. Especially Al is so respected in the business, and yes. rightfully so. And he's been writing the show for OVW, one of the unheralded, I think, greats in our business, based on his longevity and the many hats he's worn. But that never goes out of style. I did. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll use Miz. And we got a nice pop when I used Bagwell as my yes. foil, because he was a WCW guy. But Al Snow is where the money is, brother. No doubt. Uh, the money was in Steve Austin, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's going to be an investigation that you're going to have to run. Yeah. Who hit Steve Austin yeah. with a car? And, of course, that happened at 99 Survivor Series. And we know it winds up being Rikishi. There's no way that was the original plan, right? Couldn't Probably not. I will tell you, that was I believe that was Stephanie McMahon's first promo, the first promo she wrote. So I didn't make any tweaks to that one. I didn't. Uh, I did that one as written, and I thought it was really good. I don't know who the original was. Who do you think it should have been? Well, I think by the time we reveal Rikishi, it was more to give Rikishi the heel push than it was to yes. do a head-to-head program. Yes. Um, and Rikishi's a gr- great performer, Hall of Fame guy. Um I don't know if he, did he and Steve end up working off of that, or was Steve out at the time? It was, uh, no, he came back, they did something briefly, and then it was immediately with The Rock. But to me, it feels like a misuse. Nobody wanted to see, they wanted to see Rikishi dance with the guys. And, yeah. I mean, we don't want to see a heel Rikishi. I didn't want to see yeah, a heel Yeah, and people, again, they selective memory. They remember what they want to about Rikishi. Yes. And that's what people choose to remember, is the dancing with uh, Too Cool um, and not the heel turn. You were a part of the WWF going public uh, when uh, you're at the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, that had to be a pretty big deal. This is the first ever publicly traded wrestling company. I mean, I guess technically WCW was owned by the Turner organization, but still, you get where I'm going. It's a big deal when the WWF goes public. Yeah, it really was. It was a big deal to be one of the five people who represented the company. It may have been more than five, but it was, if so, it was only a few people, uh, one or two more. Yeah, so I did. I represented the company as if I really was that guy. Right. Even though, in honesty, I didn't have any say. I would stick up for angles once in a while, poke my head in there once in a while, but I was basically there to do the best job with what I was handed. 
Uh, you get Deborah as your lieutenant yeah. commissioner in late October 2000. Was that something you were pushing for? How do you think she did in the role? No, I think she did well. Um, but, you know, she was married to Steve at the time. They wanted a role for her. It meant the end of the cool Foley um, commissioner's offices. Because yeah. I had to, you know, shoot Deborah in a flattering way. I liked it. I really, I really enjoyed it. I think we did it for about two or three months, but I did like it. Uh, it was a nice change of pace. When I came back as GM, I, I, I brought up the idea that maybe Noelle should be my assistant. Wow, there you go. And I think she would have done a dynamite job, but that didn't get done. But I did, I did like having Deborah in the role. Would uh, Mrs. Foley been cool with Noelle being in that oh, role? Oh, yeah. I think my wife would have been okay. Yeah. And uh, there'd be enough people looking out for her, you know, that, uh, I mean, worse. Well, I mean, she's with Frank the Clown anyway, right? He's pretty much family at this point. Um, yeah, I think she would have been okay with her doing that. That all leads to the six-man Helena Sale at Armageddon 2000 in Birmingham, Alabama. It feels like by this point you're starting to lose your enthusiasm for the gimmick. Do you have some issues going on? Because it does feel like you're written off TV. As you're announcing the six-man, Vince attempts to overrule you. What month was this? This would have been building towards December of 2000. Yeah, because it was known that I'd be leaving in the beginning of December, middle of December, and I'd be out for a good period of time, like four months. Um, so I did want to be home. Again, like I said at the onset, one of my regrets is that I wish I'd appreciated it more, realized it was not an opportunity that comes around every day, and that I really was on a roll. I think if I had stayed there and ridden it out, I could have been that guy for a number of years, and that it would have been a really good way you know, to gracefully age in the business and uh, and have left a bigger mark than I did. But it wasn't about you losing passion for it or being tired of being on the road. It was more about, I want to spend more time with my kids. Yeah, I want to be there for this little fellow, Mickey. Uh, and I don't regret a second of that, you know. Yeah. Uh, I was home a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't regret that. And uh, the the, the storyline explanation to write you off is that Vince is trying to overrule you, but for some reason he can't. This is a little silly. And he says, if anyone gets hurt, at this show, you'll have to resign on Raw the night after the show. And, of course, at Armageddon, Vince McMahon would drive down to the ring with a truck to attempt to dismantle the cell. You come out, too. You send Vince backstage. The truck becomes a landing pad of sorts for a chokeslam off the top of the cell. Uh, the Undertaker throwing Rikishi off into a big bat of sawdust. After we've seen you fly off the cage, it feels a little silly. Well, at the same time, it was almost like you needed something. Something. Yeah. Because, I, you know, Triple H and I just had that hellacious match uh, eight, nine months earlier. Um, I think one of the things I did not write about was that we did a really good job of making it seem like I was being batted around emotionally and was really torn. I remember... China, I think China got hurt and Billy Gunn getting in my face and this is all your fault. And I think Meltzer praised it as saying Foley can act because we see these uh, the variety of emotions. And so I thought we were telling a good story where we're taking uh, Commissioner Foley out of his happy place and making me, you know, putting me in a situation where I have to make decisions that I'm not comfortable making. 
All right, time out. We need to remind everybody that the number one restaurant for wrestlers and wrestling fans in America, I mean, AEW has fundraiser events there. All the WWE guys wear it on their backstage skits and on their social media. Everybody is repping and rocking the brand. Jimmy's famous seafood.com. And they're doing it because it really is the best seafood in the world. I'm not even kidding. These are the best crab cakes I have ever had. And I have to admit, I thought it was all hype the first time I tried it. I was wrong. I'm so glad to tell you I'm wrong. And I'm glad to tell you right here during the holiday season that they ship food nationwide. That's right. Nationwide. You can enjoy Jimmy's famous seafood. You don't have to make the trek to Baltimore. They're going to bring Baltimore to you. Maryland crab cakes, the best you ever had. The soups, the chowders, the oysters, the signature steaks, plus all the desserts and even the gluten-free items. And just in time for the holidays, they've got a free two-day nationwide shipping on orders over 125 bucks. Now think about that free two day shipping. If you've ever ordered anything like this before, you know, man, what eats you up is the shipping. You can't beat free. All you got to do is spend 125 bucks. And that's not going to be hard when you see how affordable these gift boxes are and how many folks you can feed with them. When you use the promo code Foley, several packages make great holiday gifts. They've got the famous gift box, which includes four of the world's best colossal Maryland crab cakes. Seriously, Eric Bischoff once described this off of a grill as saying it was like you touch the face of God. That's how good it is. I wouldn't go that far, but let me say this best damn crab cakes I ever had. They also have two different crab soups in this famous gift box. They've got a, uh, a crab dip. They've got seafood seasoning. They've got their signature bay sauce. They've even got a tailgate bundle. If you're getting ready for bowl season, you get two pounds of wings, a full rack of ribs, a pint of crab dip, and the crab cake mix. You can even create your own package. I can't brag on Jimmy's Famous Seafood enough. I'm a regular customer. I get stuff delivered from there all the time. Your favorite wrestler and your wrestler's favorite wrestler all loves Jimmy's Famous Seafood. You got to see what all the fuss is about, and it is the perfect holiday gift. Who doesn't love the gift of crab cakes, baby? Come on. Over 40 years in the business, it really is a family business. Decades and generations of family members here. And now they've been all over TV, whether it's diners, dine-ins, and dives, maybe beat Bobby Flay. You've probably seen them on all the NFL bumper commercials. Anytime the Ravens play, Jimmy's Famous Seafood is there. Hey, maybe you even go to Ravens home games. They're set up there. They got the biggest tailgates. Guys, I love Jimmy's Famous Seafood. You will too. See what all the fuss is about and give the gift of delicious crab cakes at Jimmy's Famous Seafood. Be sure to look for the famous gift box and use that promo code Foley. You'll enjoy free shipping. You hear me? Free shipping when you use the promo code Foley at Jimmy's Famous Seafood.com. Uh, the night after we see uh, a 21 minute segment to close the show, McMahon's going to call you out uh, with a resignation paper, ask you to sign. You're going to tease signing it. He's going to bring up your kids and that you got a newborn on the way. You're trying to decide if you should Foley comes out and says the talent also wants you to sign. And Austin's not happy with the job you're doing and he doesn't want you to sign. So of course, or he wants you to sign. So of course, Austin comes out. And uh, Austin tells Foley not to sign. And before it's over, he gives a stoner to Regal, Patterson, and Briscoe. Foley puts the socko on uh, Mr. McMahon, tears up the resignation papers, throws them at Vince. And the following week, it's supposed to be Kurt Angle versus Vince with you as the referee. But it never takes place. Do you remember what happened here? Vince gets uh, him to take you down uh, before they, or, or Vince gets the takedown on him before the, the turn happens on Foley. 
Meltzer would say it had to happen. Vince got to pin the guy who never gets pinned, Triple H, for the title. He got to beat the UFC king in an octagon, Shamrock, and he got to take down a real world champion wrestler. Angle and Vince turned on Foley, did a number on him. Foley made a comeback on both, put the Socko on Vince, and then Angle stops him with a chair shot. Edge and Christian come out, do the sandwich chair shot on you, the concerto. Uh, Stephanie comes out, sides with Vince, saying the board of directors has now given total power that Linda was unfit to be CEO. Vince then fired Foley, who was all bloody. Angle hits him with one last chair shot, and you're officially written yeah. off. But on the way out, man, who, what do you think? You get Pretty good way. Uh, the only thing uh, in that angle is that I was the one who pushed for Edge and Christian to come out. Right. With the idea being that the crowd wouldn't know which way they were turning. Right. And Vince did say to me, for the record, I don't agree with you, but I'm going to let it play out. And it did not get the reaction I hoped it would. I think if Edge and Christian had run out instead of walking out slowly, it might have been different because we didn't want the crowd thinking, in retrospect, I wonder if they're going to save Mick. I think they should have been thinking, they're here to save Mick. And it would register in their mind, okay, I know they're bad guys, but they've always got around. It was kind of like a foghorn, leghorn, (laughs) whatever the dog was, and that they would be at each other at loggerheads throughout the day, and then they would punch out and they'd be friends again. So I loved that about the Edge, Christian, Foley dynamic, but it didn't work. Right. It did not work, and that was the only thing. And plus, I didn't get as much uh, blood as I would have liked to have. Um, But all in all, I thought it was a, a send off with authority. I thought it was a really good send-off, and uh, we all thought I'd be back. It turns out, you know, I, w- I was occasionally for a cup of coffee, but that role was pretty much done once uh, once I left that building. Uh, you do come back eventually um, right before Survivor Series 2001, and this is supposed to be the blow-off for the whole invasion angle. Yeah. And... Um, Meltzer would say there was a lot of talk within the industry regarding farewell Foley's uh, apparent farewell promo on November 12th, which nobody knew exactly what to make of, but was in fact scripted ahead of time and all the key points approved by McMahon. Fans were happy to see him, but he didn't seem happy and it came across. He basically said he wouldn't be around much longer. And the storyline was if the Alliance won, he's out of a job, but if the WWF won, He'd also be out of a job because he didn't want to work for Vince. So we're skipping forward about 11 months here, right? Yes. So we're forgetting that I did come back and refereed the match between Shane and Vince. And really, that was supposed to be my match with Vince for control of the company. Um, I just did not think that... I mean, this is ridiculous to read that much into it. I thought it's his company. I would. I had come up with a way of outsmarting Vince into seeding some control and that was with the handful of papers i signed before the fact and so we had linda read one that it was like i was haunting him almost from the grave you know that i was these were official edicts you know what the what the legal legality was i don't know but jesse ventura even came out in minneapolis and said yep it's legal and i thought that could have been played into more but I, I just, again, I thought the idea of coming back to demand something that wasn't rightfully mine um, through a show of force wasn't the way to do it. And I did not want to have that match with Vince because I could have sworn I was really retired. And that meant a lot to me. 
in looking at the bigger picture, I became the boy who cried wolf by saying I would come back and not coming back. And even though they had a heck of a match and it was a great mania, 17 in Houston, you were probably there as a youngster, right? I wasn't. Back- I watched. I remember exactly where I watched it, though. It was a big-time show. Oh, that's right. Bruce is a Houston guy. You're yes. an Alabama guy. Okay. It was a great show. I think one of the most highly uh, regarded manias we've yeah. ever had. Um, and I played a role in it, but not the role I could have. Right. So looking back, realizing that I was going to come back three years later anyway, it was a full four years off before I had a another match. But if I had come back, I don't think the fans would have minded. I think they would have enjoyed it. Yes. Could have done a great program with Vince. It turned in, a, you know, a spectacle of a match, if not a good match, at least a spectacle. And then resume my role as uh, commissioner, where I may have stayed for a few years. But um, we all make mistakes, and I think my record is pretty good as far as uh, making some good decisions, but that was not one of them. So you would continue in this promo talking about how the WWF title win in Worcester in 98 meant so much to you, but that there were so many belts that almost anyone could have won. (laughs) He said in his final act, he wanted to make the belts mean something again. So he announces it's IC versus US, WWF versus WCW tag title, and unification matches. And he talked about a cruiserweight unification, but said nobody had even seen X-Pac and that Tajiri would be wrestling Regal on the pay-per-view. The crowd didn't react much to this. And once he said he was gone and this was his last act, it took him down. He even sort of put over Regal, saying Regal agreed with him about the titles, which was strange to sort of put Regal over as a face. He also mentioned that the previous week when TV was in Nassau in the Meadowlands, that he was there both nights, but they had nothing for him. Yeah. He seemed upset in particular that on Long Island, where he grew up, they couldn't find a reason to get him on Raw, which was a true story. In hindsight, it appears that some people were pushing for getting him back on TV because of his popularities, but others didn't want him. Well, look, I was having trouble with WWE at that time. How and so? Why? How so? I can't undersell the magnitude of the pressure as far as being in the public eye. That, like I said, it was like being a rock star without the rock star trappings. Um, yeah, it was it was kind of overwhelming, and I didn't feel like I was being compensated for that. I just kind of had it. I mean, look, I banned WWE from my Today Show appearance on Halloween, which no one's ever done, because they do things their own way. And so, I, I, like, I was the one who ex- had to explain to my artist, Jill Thompson, why she hadn't been paid yet. Um, so I was on in May with um, Foley is Good. They invited me back for October. And I asked that WWE not be allowed uh, in the studio, which had never been done. And, um, you know, when I cut that promo on the plane, I did tell Vince that if he needed me to, like, uh, tie up the loose ends, I'd be happy to do that. So my last moment as commissioner was when he brought me, I flew into Charlotte, was driven to the private airport to get on Vince's plane, the, the corporate jet, get fired, and then walk off. And I saw the nature boy, you know, as I was leaving. He became the new authority figure. I just kind of had it. I don't know how to explain it, but I just kind of had it. I was so frustrated uh, basic, I mean, you know, here's, all right, now it's coming to me. The truth is, when my book came out, May, the New York Times did an article in which I said I was thinking of writing a novel. 
Judith Regan made me an offer out of hand. Yeah. We can either do this with WWE or we can do it without them. I said, look, they, they're involved in just about everything. One thing they hadn't had the foresight to include was a potential novel. And looking back at it now, it, A, it probably would have sold better as a WWE project. B, it wouldn't have meant much anyway. But it was really important to me to do something outside. To do something outside. And Vince, for all his great qualities, he doesn't let up on things like that. So I asked to be let out of my contract a year early. I think I asked that in July. We hemmed and hawed. And then uh, you can ask JR about grilling JR, where he, he saw me at Nassau Coliseum and he said, Mick, he said, we're at a situation where we think if we make you uh, fulfill the rest of your contract, that we will likely not be able to do business anymore. But Vince and I talked and we thought if we were to let you out now, we would be in a position where we could do business down the line. Do you think that's fair? I said, yeah, I think that's fair. And uh, so I left. And then I was brought back in November to make that promo and cut that promo and was brought back a week or two later to Charlotte. Uh, to get fired publicly, which I was glad to do because it did tie up those loose ends. And I remember uh, on my way out of Nassau Coliseum, not knowing if there would be any other TV episodes, I saw Stacey Keebler, who I only knew a little bit because she came in in July, and this is only a few months later, but I liked her. I had a nice friendship with her, and I'm starting to walk out, and I was like, my conscience is calling out to me, like, this business is going to get to this beautiful young lady and try to put pressure on her to make changes I don't think she needs to make. So I said, can I talk to you for a second? She said, sure. I said, sometimes in this business, people think because things usually are a certain way, they need to be this way. And she looks at me and goes, are you talking about my boobs? And I said, as a matter of fact, I am talking about your boobs. She goes, don't worry, I'm not getting a boob job. And I said, okay. And I left. That's exactly what I wanted to I didn't want anyone to put pressure on her to do something that I thought... She had clearly thought about it. Yeah. And that was what I thought would be my last, uh, you know, moment in WWE. And uh, a year and a half later, when I came back, she was the first person I saw when I opened up the uh, door. And it was like I'd never left. But it was such a difficult thing to even leave that hotel room because I did not know whether I could ever go back again. Man, what a fascinating story. Um, when it's written here that there were some people who didn't want you on TV, who did you assume that was? I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. I thought I was doing a good job. I mean, I could see people who would say, uh, it's you know, like I said, I came in as a commissioner when the, the scene needed to be lightened up a little bit. And uh, maybe those in power thought that uh, times have changed and we need someone other than Mick doing it. But I was okay. You know, I uh, I landed on my feet. Meltzer would say, historically, most of McMahon's biggest stars leave him on bitter terms. As noted from several interviews, Foley hadn't been happy with his role in the WWF, and the writing team wasn't happy with Foley since he nicked storylines for his return to the ring. When he did return, the material he was given was unusually lame. Not that Foley was the only person with lame material during a creative dearth. But it did almost come across that some people wanted to back in the company, others were mad at him, and didn't put him in a position where he'd be anything but a disappointment. Do you feel like after you turned down the return with Vince, they were giving you intentionally bad stuff? Well, I think another aspect is that when I did come back, uh, and this is you know the reliance on the ratings, 
there wasn't a big boost, and Vince returned as the on-air Vince McMahon like a week later, yeah. if uh, two weeks at the latest. So one of the luxuries I had when I took the job in uh, June of 2000 was that you know, Vince gave that promo about wanting to be a, a genetic jackhammer and go home to give Linda more babies. And so I was able to uh, kind of shape that role. So I do know when I came back, you know, it was like playing Twister with Vince. It was, uh, uh, and even when I would come back occasionally, it was to do silly stuff. And uh, maybe that, yeah, I could see why people thought that wasn't the direction the company needed to go at that time. But I do think when I was in that role that I did a, a really good job of getting the angles over. I agree. Helping some guys along the way, making it enjoyable and changing, you know, the feeling of the show at a time when it needed to be changed. Changed. I want to mention, too, um, Meltzer wrote about your, your bit on the plane. So I want to recap that, at least briefly. It was a clumsy farewell. I guess we should remind everybody, as you're leaving... Vince smiles and says, have a nice day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dave would say it was a clumsy farewell, far more like a sitcom star leaving a show suddenly with no logical explanation other than something forced with the writers clueless of how to handle it, as opposed to the kind of farewell a unique wrestler would be expected to get publicly parting from the company he'll forever be associated with. Even a character as important as the WWF's business turnaround as Foley, who I'd rank only behind Austin and Rock, his farewell was a letdown. Did you feel like your farewell was a letdown? Well, maybe, but it was not as big a letdown as if we just left the strings untied. Uh, I mean, I did come back, and there was a handoff of sorts, you know, not officially, but Rick came back the next day, uh, I mean that same day. So I felt good that I at least made the plane trip and let them tie up the loose ends. Uh, you wanted to, as they say in wrestling, quote-unquote, do business. Yeah, I wanted to do business, and that was a difficult thing after we said, okay, you know, let's part ways. And then I, I, I think it was on a phone call where I said, if you need me to come back for a we couple weeks to tie up the storyline, I will. And we did it in one. Maybe it would have been better in two weeks, but uh, I really needed that time away because it's only with the time away that you appreciate what you had, yes. really. And... Um, yeah, I was I was I was glad to be away and I was glad to come back and it was really nice when I when I came back and then I had uh, you know I came back in 2003 and then when I came back in 2004 I thought I really did business that I couldn't have done if I'd stayed there the whole time. Right. So it, it worked out in the end, but again to repeat reiterate if I'd known what a great opportunity that was, I would have held on to it. I think you could argue that I could have had just as memorable a return to the ring if someone had forced my hand. And I think that's one of the requirements if you're an ex-wrestler is that once a year or maybe less, you have to be able to say, I stands all I can stands, I can't stands no more. Take on somebody and then go back to your... Kurt Angle did it, right? Yes. Kurt Angle did it, and uh, he did a great job uh, for you know for in two matches where he's still the former WWE champion, still the Olympic gold medalist, and he comes back uh, to, set thing, to set things back in place. So I didn't have that opportunity, but if I knew I was coming back in 2000, if I knew that there was going to be a return to the ring, yeah, it would have been really cool to have had it with one of the guys that I was verbally sparring with in that position. 
One year ago, this is Meltzer's words, one year ago, both Foley and most everyone involved in the WWF expected that even though his career as an active wrestler was over due to all his injuries from his crazy bumps, that he would in some form be part of the WWF as a goodwill ambassador for life. As history has shown, lifetime deals in the WWF don't usually last very long after you've taken your last bump. Foley seemingly wanted to be in control of his various non-wrestling deals for future TV appearances, as well as future books, since while under WWF contract, they largely controlled him. The negative is without the WWF's TV exposure, whether Foley has the ability to write entertaining books, the sales of those books won't be close to what they would be if pushed on television. I think it's fascinating that Vince is, uh, in theory, setting you up for a lifetime deal like we've heard once upon a time he did for Bret Hart, but as Meltzer points out, that didn't really ever last too long. Yeah. Um, and I just, I like to do different things, and I felt like I needed to do different things. And Vince uh, was and still is a, a micromanager. But here we are 21 years after the fact. Yeah. And we got the show going. I'm on great terms with WWE. Or may, I may or may not be doing a... Maybe. Maybe some filming that'll... Allegedly. <laughs> and, it will, and it will be, if it was done, it's been it's been done well. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was uh, for several years, I still had the boss's ear and I could still be in the, uh, the room. I could call him up one day and be in the, in the room the next day pitching an idea. Uh, so I think, uh, I think things turned out, turned out pretty good for me. NMLS number 65084 Equal Housing Lender. Woo! The five-star reviews are in, and it's confirmed. SaveWithConrad.com can save you thousands. Jimmy E. writes that we saved his family more than $1,000 a month. James S. says we saved his family more than $1,200 a month. But how much can you save? It's free to find out right now at SaveWithConrad.com. But if you've got a second mortgage, if you've got credit card debt, or even worse, if you're in a 30-year loan, it's not a matter of if we can save you money, but a matter of how much at SaveWithConrad.com. Woo Wings, a virtual restaurant concept from the man himself, the nature boy, Ric Flair. Enjoy the legendary flavors and world championship wings by ordering with your Uber Eats or Postmates app. Woo Wings is now open in Nashville, San Antonio, Jacksonville, Florida, as well as Huntsville and Tuscaloosa in Alabama, with many more locations coming soon. Try the only chicken wings worthy of carrying the name of the 16-time world heavy weight champion. Tell him, Nate. Wings! Legendary flavors! World Championship Wings! Woo! Woo Wings! Yeah! Woo Woo! CJ Whitmore wants to know, if you could go back and change one thing about your commissioner run, what would it be? Well, I answer that. I would have I would have stayed in more touch with Vince so I, when he had the XFL going, so I could have known what the plan was for coming back, voiced the, my objections to it, and worked our way through it. And I probably should have done the match with Vince at WrestleMania 2001. Craig wants to know, if you took working for Vince out of the question, would you have ever considered a real behind-the-scenes talent management slash commissioner type role? <laughs> oh, God. And would it have worked with you trying to be? No, no. I don't have a business. I don't have the head for business and the attention to details. I did as far as character went. Maybe I could have been a good guy to help with promos. uh, But, I mean, I just, I remember asking Hillbilly Jim about his his work with WWE and saying, yeah, we'd like to do something. But 
a little bit of Vince went a long way for me. Like I just knew I couldn't be that close. So when uh, Johnny, John Laurinaitis, and I talked in 2000, uh, when I came back from TNA, it was almost like opening up a menu and asking me what I wanted to order. Uh, I could host shows, I could come back occasionally, I could be an agent, pretty much anything I wanted, and I just thought, I can't be an agent, like, I can't do that. Uh, I would have loved to have been offered the idea to be, uh, um, what's the role that they, uh, Vince Russo claims that USA hired him as a... Uh, oh, a consultant. Consultant. Nobody ever offered me a consultant's role. He said role. claims. He did. I'm, if he claims he did, then he did. Just let me clear that up. Um... I would have loved to have been offered a consultant's role. I think that what I have to say is valuable. Uh, For the entirety, I mean, up until a couple years ago, I lived on Long Island. I was an hour and a half away, which only like three people, you know, were. I think it was me, Taz, and Tommy Dreamer were New Yorkers. Almost everybody, almost by official edict, was either in Florida or Texas. And so I, I think I could have contributed more, although I will say I think I did contribute quite a bit with returns in 2004, 2006, um, to, you know, and not so much after I came back from TNA, but uh, I've been part of the mix. I was able to come back with this shirt on and cut a promo uh, with Moxley and Seth Rollins that I thought was really valuable. I did the Holy Foley show. Like, I was, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good with how things turned out. Dylan wants to know, whose idea was it for every week your office would be in these crazy and interesting <laughs> spots in the building, and what was your favorite office setting? Uh, that was Brian Noyer. Uh, looks like Noel, but it's Noyer. Sound guy, he took a lot of pride in it. And it's funny that <laughs> it was on the man, For All Mankind DVD talking about a little girl from Make-A-Wish who gave me the stuffed animal that I named Sarge and put in just about every single office setting. And it was great, except for the fact she wasn't a Make-A-Wish child. She was a little girl I met on a personal appearance and asked if maybe one day this stuffed animal could be in an A segment. And so I remember uh, years and years later, someone found me, tracked me down, and I recorded... Uh, a wedding video that they showed for her at her wedding and she broke into tears and I'm still in touch with her, you know, every year or so. Uh, so that was, uh, that was, I would say my favorite office setting was the women's bathroom, uh, where I set up, uh, set up my office. Tony Schiavone's <laughs> favorite too. It was really, and we had the little, <laughs> I think Agent Christian said this is going to be the shortest rain, and I said, here, then take one of these, and it was a little umbrella for a drink. I said, the shortest umbrella, and they said, oh, that's so lame, and when they walked out, I said, I thought that was really creative. Didn't you? I'm trying to think what I called her. It was in tribute to an Australian swimmer who'd won Olympic gold a year or two earlier, and she goes, very clever, Mr. Foley. So she did the flush, and then she did the... Uh, the brief appearance. So that was probably my favorite. Although a close second would be when Kurt Angle and I were on <laughs> Zamboni. Oh, that was fun. <laughs> we were on the back of something that was being moved, and the whole thing took place one take as we were being transported from one way to another. And so there were a lot of there were a lot of good setups, uh, but those were two of my favorites. 
Uh, Jeremy Strunk says, Foley is pod, the DVD that WWE put out covering this time period called Hard Knocks and Cheap Pops was easily one of my favorite offerings for them. It was so upbeat and fun. Did Mick have any input on that? Yeah, yeah, I guess I did. Um, I mean, you know, there have been a few times where I sat in on the editing. This was not one of those cases. I always felt like I was working with really, really capable people. And I made it a point, like, when I saw somebody do a video package, that I would find out who did it so I could call them up and thank them because I think those guys are the unheralded greats. And for whatever thing people think of WWE, man, their production is just... How great was David Zahadi? Oh, Zahadi was great. Chris Chambers. There were so many good people that I work with. Um, everybody, everybody who works for WWE and works there has to be... Uh, top of the line because a lot's expected of them and a lot's demanded of them and they they come through time after time. Uh, Michael Lemon says, uh, how did you come up with the tables, ladders, and chairs on my gimmick or was that your idea? Of course, that's my idea and I think it was just off the cuff. I think as we did it, I just said, uh, it could turn out that there will be a script that shows up that says tables, ladders, and chairs, but I believe and have believed for many, many years that it was just an off-the-cuff statement that I came up with and used. Adam wants to know, do you feel like it was a missed opportunity for the company to not have brought in Leslie Nielsen to help you figure out who ran down Stone Cold? Of course, that's a nod to the old under-faker thing. That would have been great. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, but they were trying to play that seriously. And uh, with Rikishi, so how serious was it? I did have a nice little run there for a little while. One of the ideas I heard, though, was that someone pitched, what if the trunk that ran him over pops and orange balloons float out and it's Taz? As if Taz is going to have a bunch of freaking orange balloons. Like that's, can you imagine even trying to pitch that to the Taz we know? There's no yeah, way he would yeah. go for that. Uh, Andrew Love says, is there anything you learned from being the commissioner in 2000 that you used during your 2016 run? It was almost a completely different time period. It was like a different company. Yeah, so much had changed. Um, and eventually what I did learn, I would learn through ex- that experience. But um, I think just the idea that I would try, I would, I would wait, and I would appeal to Vince on certain things. And uh, so when I was a GM, I think, dearly standing up for Cesaro and... Uh, and Sheamus were big deals. I remember walking up to those guys and saying, now listen, I don't know if it's going to come to anything, but I, I, Cesaro, the idea that he was taken so low in the draft, had to be. I had to have a reason whether or not it came to fruition. And so I said, look, in my mind, your shoulder's still a question mark. And with Sheamus, it was that his head hadn't been into the game since before the League of Nations. And I'm really proud of the stuff I was able to do with those guys. So I think I learned... Uh, where and when to fight those battles. Well, we're not going to be fighting a battle next week. We're going to be talking about Christmas. Yeah. The show drops on the 23rd. We're calling it A Very Foley Christmas. We'll discuss your love of Santa, Christmas, and all your Christmas adventures. Of course, the perfect Christmas present for the wrestling fan there's in a couple, your life. There's a couple perfect ones. Especially if they got a little facial hair. A full Yeti, Arctic Blast. This is the stuff I use. I use almost every day. If I don't use this because I'm forgetting about it, even with the beard not being near epic, it's really good stuff. It's tingle, especially when you come out of the shower. I love it. You can go to uh, 
mythicalbeards.com. And let me see if I got uh, if uh, there's a code. I just uh, I reached out to the uh, Andrew, the owner, and said, "Hey, can we give people a code?" And uh, keep talking, Conrad. Mythicalbeards.com. Of course, you may have heard the story here on the show. Uh, he demanded it's not wintry enough. It's not <laughs> mentholy enough. It's like uh, maybe if you've ever used like Selsun Blue or Head and Shoulder, maybe some drip down to your nether regions. You'd be like, oh, it's like a little mint back there. Well, this is the equivalent of that for your face, and almost as a rib on Mick. They went full blast, full Arctic blast, thinking for sure he'll say pull it back and mix it. Perfect. Perfect. I love it. And uh, so will you. Mythical beer. Andrew said, okay, I don't have to be. Oh, oh, man, I don't have the Foley glasses. Foley Yeti is what we're talking about here. So you may remember this is uh, not the Yeti that showed up to have relations with Whoa. the side of Hulk Hogan at Halloween Havoc 1995. This is, in fact, talking about the abominable snowman. It's that level yeah. of cold. And you're going to be smelling oh so cool. Code Foley will give you 20% off. Did you really just turn your phone on and put your glasses on to cover your code as Foley? I yeah. could have just guessed that. Come on, <laughs> mythicalbeers.com. The promo code is Foley. You won't forget it. I won't either. Mick might, but you won't. Mythicalbeards.com. And can we get a reminder in about the cameos? That's, what we were, that's where I was going first okay. before you went Beard yeah. Jones on me. Give the gift this holiday season that will last all year long a cameo from the hardcore legend himself, Mick Foley. Birthdays, anniversaries, even funerals. That's right. Mick puts the fun back in funerals. Okay, maybe not really. Either way, Mrs. Foley's baby boy will send you a message like no one else. All you got to do is go to cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. And be sure to use our very special promo code. Save yourself 25% off when you use Foley Christmas as your promo code. One more time. That's cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. Save 25% off with Foley Christmas as your promo code. This is the perfect gift this holiday season for the big wrestling fan in your life. No one will believe they got such a personalized message and a fun one that they can share at Christmas and over the holiday break. Mick Foley, man, one of a kind, check it out. Cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. You know, as Jr says, it costs nothing to look. Just go take a look. Cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. When you see what he's done for other people, you're going to want one. Why not save 25% and use the promo code Foley Christmas at cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. Now, let's not forget, we have Mankind on the Street making its Foley's Pod debut. Let's take a look. I can't wait. Let's do it. We'll see you next week right here for a very special edition of Foley's Pod. But first, Mankind on the Street. So long, everybody. Have a nice day. Hey everyone, it's the hardcore legend Nick Foley navigating an escalator at the Pittsburgh International Airport. It's always one of the most difficult moments of the day for me. Why? Because they have monuments set up to famous people from the Pittsburgh area. So if you see, the father of our country, George Washington, uh, he fired the first shots of the French and Indian War. First president, okay, I can understand that. Go ahead, over here, Franco Harris and his immaculate reception. 
Go ahead. This is uh, Nellie Bly, and I understand she was a world-known traveler. She uh, went around the globe in a record 72 days in 1889, but here's the thing. Who did she ever beat? With the 25th anniversary of the cell coming up, don't you think it's about time they made room? I'm not saying we kick Nellie Bly out or Franco or George. Just make room for a testament to hell and a cell. Can I grab a word with you, sir? Yes. How often do you travel through this airport? Every month. Every month. So we have seen Franco Harris, George Washington, Nellie Bly. But wouldn't you rather see a tribute to the Hell in a Cell match with The Undertaker? Where am I in all this? 100%. I will agree with you. It's such a shame. You should be right here. I imagine that you're road weary, you're worn down. And then you come down that escalator, you see The Undertaker throwing me off the well, top of the cell. you know who was my Halloween costume? Who? The Undertaker. Oh, you kid me not. Look at that. You want to throw me off the top of this balcony? No. Sure. I can still do it. You're here, Undertaker there, and you on another line. He could be up here, and I could be down. Oh, man. I know The Undertaker. Okay. He well, was a wrestler. He was a wrestler? Yes. Okay, so if you Googled... Mankind. Oh my God. So with that in mind. I would say you should have a baby right next to Oh, thank you so much. That's, fell off the whole thing. I do believe I deserve to be honored in the same way that George Washington yes, and Frank O'Hara says. Yeah. With Sako on your hand. Yeah. All right, would you like to talk to me about the 1998 Hell in a Cell match with The Undertaker? Talk about the 1998 Hell in a Cell match with me and The Undertaker? Miss, please, what, what please. Else? That's insane. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's, that's insane. Crazy. Would you like to see a tribute to The Undertaker throwing me off the cell? I would. Question, who did George Washington ever be? I'm not saying George Washington does not deserve a monument. He's got a nice one in Washington, D.C. I belong in that airport. I deserve to be celebrated because I was thrown off the top of a cell here, right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania.